Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hi, I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Leo Polovitz from Susha Ventures. Leo's been a very early employee at LinkedIn and Google. We have a cool conversation about his path, advice, and his investment in Robinhood. Also, a big thanks to Turner Novak for helping get Leo for this conversation. Really appreciate it, Turner. PayClub has two big fintech conferences coming up. One's called Finnovate. It's in San Francisco in a couple weeks. We're demoing a live version of the app there in front of probably like a thousand investors. So hopefully things go well. And the other is called Transact. It's at the end of the month. And we're one of the 10 startups chosen to be part of the uh, their startup track. They're giving us a little bit of money, flying us out to Vegas. And then we get advice from some payments experts. I'm pretty excited about both. Conferences are the best time for us to reconnect with everyone we're interested in connecting with. We scroll through the list of attendees and we make two lists. One of people we already know and just want to say what up to. Uh, And the other list of people is people that we don't know but want to know. The excuse of the conference makes for a pretty compelling reason to send a cold email. Something like, hey, we're part of the startup program, saw you're attending, would love to say hi for X or Y reason. Then we see what happens. It's good to do as much of the pre-work as possible before we get there. But then once the event starts, you hope for some of that conference magic. You meet people you didn't expect to. You bump into them. You get intros to people you should know. There's parties and dinners. And we just hustle our way into all of it. Emails are great. We get lots of calls and meetings from emails. And then we try to convert those calls into in-person meetings. Although Eric, who was on the pod last week, he wrote us a check having never met us in person. I don't think that's normal though. So our plan, we try to convert those calls into actual face-to-face meetings. What the conference does for us though is it helps us bypass all the emails, the calls, and we get straight to the real interactions, which is super valuable. For a startup though, getting to the conferences, it takes a fair amount of planning since we're not just plunking down the couple of grand it costs to attend them. Gotta hustle. We apply to startup programs or sometimes a demo, or we use the podcast to get press passes. Once you're there, though, it doesn't matter how you got there. The field's leveled. It's like working for a good company or going to a good school. There's many paths to get there, but once you're there, nobody cares how you, how you did, just that you're there. Man, I really turned this conference thing into a full spiel this morning. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to talk about, per usual. Uh, okay, let's get into the conversation with Leo. Leo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you were actually referred by a listener, this guy Turner, who's like I'm friends with on Twitter, and he's like, oh, I got a great guest for you, 
and he made the introduction, and like now we're sitting in San Francisco doing the podcast, or Palo Alto, sorry, doing the podcast. That's really cool. Yeah, tw- Twitter's been a great source of just meeting really interesting people, and I feel like it's it's a, it's a good place to discover people with shared interests, and it's been great. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're a venture capitalist, like. I always say this, but you didn't like start off your career. A few venture capitalists like start off their career thinking that they're going to be a venture capitalist. You're a uh, software developer. You're an engineer, um, and so I'd like to hear about the beginning. You like you went to where'd you go, where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to undergrad at Caltech. Mm-hmm. I was definitely like a math and science nerd in high school, and Caltech seemed like a really great place for that, and it was. Um, and so I studied computer science there. Um, so did that. Graduated in two thousand three. And I got really lucky. Uh, I had this internship at a company called Reuters for a, a few summers in college. And one of the people there that became sort of like a mentor to me on the engineering side uh, ended up starting a company in 2003. And they invited me to join them. And it seemed really interesting. And I mostly wanted to join just because like, I really liked working with this friend. I felt like I alert, learned a lot from them. And the company ended up being LinkedIn. And so I ended up joining right when they raised their Series A. It was like October, November 2003. It was like 12, 13 people at the time. Um, worked there for a couple of years. And uh, and then after that, went to Google for a while. Uh, and after that, you know, Google grew a lot when I was there. It went from like 5,000 people to 20,000. And so towards the end of that, I missed startups again. So I went to another startup. Um, kind of similar stage to LinkedIn. It was, you know, we joined when it was like 15 people. Uh, left when it was about 60. That one is called Factual, and they're still around there in Los Angeles. Um, and then about six years ago, I was trying to figure out what to do next, and one of my friends was starting this like seed stage venture fund, and they invited me to try it out, and it seemed really interesting. And so I, I tried it out and been doing it ever since. Okay. So, I mean, that LinkedIn thing is just so incredibly lucky, right? Like, you're so lucky to have made that friend. I mean, luck to, to put you in the room with that friend, but then, you know, on you to actually fortify the relationship and build it and, and everything. But I imagine a lot of listeners are like, you know, like, how do I get my break like that? Like, what do you, is there anything that you like attribute, you know, like being there to, or like taking advantage of that opportunity to? Um, I think most of it is I was just really trying to optimize for the people I worked with. And so with this friend of mine, his name was Jan. Um, he was about, I think, 10, 12 years older than me and was, you know, pretty far along in his software engineering career at that point. And just working a couple of summers with him as an intern and his team, like I learned so much from him and I felt like he was, you know, probably the best developer I'd met at that time. Although admittedly I hadn't met that many, but I'd actually still make that claim today now that I've worked with a lot of developers, like he was just really exceptional. And so I felt like working with him, like I would learn a lot, you know, be a really good experience for me, like just starting out my career. Um, and so that was the thing I really optimized for. And, you know, to be honest, like I didn't have a particularly smart outlook on LinkedIn or social networking, which was just emerging at that time or anything else. Um, so it was a little bit of luck. And then also, I mean, I think the key for me was like, if I worked with this guy, even if the company failed, I I think I would have felt like it was a good experience for me. Um, and so that made it sort of a, you know, pretty risk-free move. Right. To optimize just to following someone that you think you can learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I like that. Uh, and then now looking back, what do you think would have happened if it didn't turn into anything? Do you think you'd still be in venture? Um, probably not, but I mean, I, I took such a, like a circuitous route here that who knows where I would have ended up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, I've always definitely been very into like, you know, software engineering, programming algorithms. So I'm guessing I would have just stayed more in the engineering track. Um, but I definitely really like small teams and startups. So I think I probably would have found my way just towards startups, you know, somehow over time. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to think about. Right. Um, okay. So that's great. And then like 
what are you what are you doing at LinkedIn? You're building the like the original software of the of the app. Yeah. So when I joined, um, so I joined in late 2003. They launched, I think it was like Cinco de Mayo 2003. So it was like six months earlier. Um, they had some members, but it was still pretty small. I think maybe 40, 50,000 users at the time. Um, a lot of them were actually, I think, friends and friends of friends of the original founding team. So like, you know, Reid Hoffman invited like a thousand people and some of them invited their friends. And that was basically like the core user demographic in the early days. Um, so when I joined, the site was pretty basic. You know, it had like invitations, uh, you know, you could like upload a list of contacts and LinkedIn would, you know, invite them for you or if you wanted it to. And, you know, profile pages. And I think that was probably about it. And over the two years I was there, we developed a lot of the, the core features that are, you know, still a big part of the product today. So like LinkedIn Jobs, the job posting board uh, that came out around like 2004, 2005. Uh, LinkedIn groups, such as like for alumni groups and, you know, interest groups and things like that that came out in that time. Um, I think we turned on turned on advertising sometime in like 2005. We played around with ads a little bit. Um, so a lot of like the the cool features that are still around today and drive a lot of the company's revenue and, and usage are you know were built in that time. So it was really cool. Um, the data science, machine learning stuff that LinkedIn eventually became known for. Like I was just barely starting out. It wasn't really there. So it was more about like building the core product features. And um, there were there were like five six developers at, uh, at the company during the early days I was there. Mm -hmm. And so we just sort of would pair up and. You know, two or, like two or three pairs of people would work on a feature, and then and then we'd try to crank it out in a couple of weeks. And Amazing. Repeat. So, finally, you got your like on the rocket ship in the very beginning of, of your career, and it sounds like you did learn a lot, right? And then, like, what facilitated you leaving LinkedIn? Yeah, so I I really enjoyed uh, LinkedIn. You know, just starting out my career. Um, the the guy that I Jan that I really liked working with previously. Uh, you know, he continued to give me a lot of like insights and feedback and advice on, you know, how to build software and like how to do it well. Um, and so I felt like I learned a lot for a couple of years. And then around 2004, 2005, Google started emerging as like a really, really cool place for an engineer to work. Uh, they just launched Google Maps and Gmail and like kind of these first really rich JavaScript applications. And I still remember like sitting around with some of my uh, de developer friends and, you know, when Google Maps came out and like one of them was like zooming around in his computer and we're all ooing and aahing. Um, and so a lot of engineers at that time wanted to go to, to work at Google. And a couple of the early LinkedIn employees did that. Um, and, you know, after a few months, they sort of came back and they're like, hey, I think you'd really like it here. You should apply. It's like, you know, they work on the kind of problems you like to work on. So at that time, I, you know, I, Kind of felt like I, would, I was happy at LinkedIn, uh, but a lot of my friends were telling me to apply to Google and seemed like an interesting place. So I decided to apply. And if I didn't get an offer, I just, you know, I was happy I'd stay at LinkedIn. And, and if I did get an offer, I'd think about it. And I ended up getting an offer. And the, the team that I was, I would be on was um, like payment fraud detection. And the team was just starting out. So it felt a little bit startup-y. And um, so it seemed like a cool opportunity. So I decided to take that and ended up leaving LinkedIn. Um, cool. And you bring up. Payment fraud. I'll need to talk with you after the podcast about my startup, and we need some payment fraud, fraud <laughs> help. Um, but that's really cool. And was LinkedIn in Mountain View at the time? Where where were, where were their offices? Yeah, we sort of jumped offices every year or so, uh -huh. uh, mostly in the search for cheaper and bigger space. So uh, when I started, we were in Mountain View, uh, and then we moved to Palo Alto, and then we actually moved to East Palo Alto, which is. Uh, not the like safest or nicest area, but it was really cheap. So we were actually across the street from like the East Palo Alto Airport, um, and so we were there for kind of the last year or so be before I went to Google. Got it. And I mean, I, I assume LinkedIn grew like a lot while, while while you were there, but still, it's very different from going to Google, which is pretty established, pretty big company at the time. 
Yeah, yeah. So when I was when I was at LinkedIn, I think it grew from about a dozen people to maybe 45, 50, something like that mm-hmm. over two years. And then when I joined Google in late 2005, it was about 5,000 people. And I was there for three and a half years. And in that three and a half years, it actually grew from 5,000 to, I think, 22 or 23,000. So it was, wow. it was still scaling really, really quickly. Yeah, they're both scaling really quickly. Wow. Yeah. Um, amazing. And you were on um, payments fraud prevention the entire time? Uh, I was there for uh, about three of the three and a half years. And then the last few months, I wanted to try something new. So I actually worked on Google Docs for a little bit. Oh, cool. Um, and I you know, tried working a little bit more on the front end instead of the back end mm-hmm. and kind of realized it wasn't for me and also realized like I really wanted to go work at a small company. And so that was that was when I went to uh, Factual. The front end wasn't for you, but the, you liked working on the, on the fraud prevention, even though it was like a very specific thing for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the fraud prevention stuff was really interesting just because it's uh, in a way, it's kind of like an arms race, mm-hmm. right? So you implement some rules to try to catch, you know, bad guys using stolen credit cards, uh, and then within a couple of months, you know, some of those rules get reverse engineered, and so now, like, you know, the attacks are a little bit more sophisticated. So you're you're always, you know, you're always like trying to play catch up, trying to, you know, get a couple steps ahead of the bad guys. Um, so I really like that dynamic and the fact that it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like a cookie cutter thing where it's like, well, you do step one, two, and three, and then you're done. It was more like it's never ending and you can keep going deeper and deeper. And so I really enjoyed that. And so I worked on it for most of my time at Google. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of it now. I don't know that it excites me the way that it excites you. Our CTO does does like it. And then I read a lot about it in the PayPal book, too. How they were like experimenting with all sorts of things and fighting the Russian mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. So, so yeah, what's, uh, what's next? Factual? Yeah. So I worked at Factual. Factual is a location data provider. So a lot of times if you're using an app that shows you places nearby, you know, like Yelp, Facebook places, that kind of thing, um, they have to get that business data from somewhere. And so what happened previously is there was a company called, I think, InfoUSA, where they would just buy phone books. Uh, this is, you know, as far as I know, they would, they would buy phone books, they would scan them, OCR them, call businesses once or twice a year, and then they would sell this, like, data set that was verified for millions of dollars wow. every year to, like, you know, Yahoo and, wow, and any get, company that wanted to show you businesses I need to do that you. business. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so... Um, I think around 2007, 2008, uh, a couple of companies like Foursquare and Factual started getting into other ways of sourcing this data. So they would do it by crawling the web. They do it by crowdsourcing through check-ins. And, and so basically the problem was like you start getting all this data from all these different sources, but it was pretty messy. So you had to clean it up. You had to deduplicate it, make sure like, you know, you didn't list the Starbucks three times in your directory. Um, so I worked on that, on that stuff for about, you know, four years. Uh, that was actually another instance where I really optimized for the people when I joined. Um, the, the founder, the CEO of that company had a really remarkable background. He had previously sold, uh, started and sold a company called Applied Semantics to Google. And a lot of people haven't heard of Applied Semantics. Uh, Google acquired them, I think, back in like 2002, 2003. And then they turned into AdSense. And so this acquisition basically became like half of Google's revenue over time. Wow. Um, and so so the founder of Factual, Gil, he had, he had co-founded Applied Semantics and, and then when Google acquired them, he ran like Google's engineering office in Santa Monica for a few years. And so when I got an offer from them, um, I had a couple other companies I was thinking about, but just having the chance to work with somebody like that, that had built, you know, this big company, and then they ran like a big division in Google. Um, and now they were, you know, starting a company again, and I get to join kind of at the ground floor when they're, you know, I'd be working alongside this person. They were there, you know, 10 hours a day kind of thing. That seemed like a really special opportunity. And so that was, that was what really drove me to, to that company. Yeah. And I want to ask about like you know the op- getting the opportunity to to work with such an amazing founder. Do you think it's because 
I mean, what combination is it of like your actual skill set and then like them valuing just like LinkedIn and Google names on a resume? Um, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I met Gil through uh, a friend of a friend and, and I think they were just looking for a really specific role, which was like somebody that had done a lot of work with data and then also had, you know, some good algorithms experience and yeah. was also, you know, frankly willing to like work in L.A., because um, at the time I wanted to take a little bit of a break from the Bay Area, and most engineers want to like move to the Bay Area. Sure. Um, and so, so I think I had a good algorithms background. You know, I had like I had a decent background. You know, of like four or five years of engineering experience by that point. Um, and I think you know I just I clicked with Gil, I clicked with the team, and I was what they were looking for, and I was going to be in LA, and so it, it seemed like it was kind of a good mutual I mean, fit. Yeah, perfect. I think that answers the question. It was like you building this relationship and proving yourself, and the back the the pedigree was just like a nice to have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, great. So, how does it go moving out to L- moving out to LA and working for this company? Uh, well, so so Caltech was near LA, so I hadn't lived in LA proper, but I'd spent you know a bit of time around there and really liked it. Um, and so then when I when I moved to Factual, uh, you know, lived kind of near the Santa Monica area for about you know two years, and then worked remotely for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting contrast to LinkedIn because LinkedIn a lot of the early engineering team was from France, and so I think they um, they really liked the you know France has like a much more relaxed work environment where I think you get like good vacation, you have reasonable work hours. So at LinkedIn we would do like you know, 40 hour weeks, you come in at nine, you leave at like 5.30, like people don't really stay late. Um, so it was actually, as far as startups go, it didn't really feel like that, you know, uh, 100 hour crazy pace every week. Um, Factual was like, there was a lot to do and we had a small team. And so I think definitely there were weeks that were like the normal, you know, 40, 50 hours, but there, are, there are, I remember there were a couple of weeks where like we were trying to get some critical feature out for, you know, our like biggest customer and, you know, I'd like sleep under my desk for a couple of days or something. And so it was, it was, it was very different, but, um, you know, I think, I think one of the things I really love about startups is like the team cohesiveness. And that was definitely one of the things that I, you know, kept me a factual for four years, which, um, which is that the team was really great and everyone I think enjoyed working together professionally and also, you know, hanging out personally. And I think it almost had this kind of family atmosphere that I really enjoyed. That's awesome. I guess this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, like an investing question, but if you were sitting across from founders and they said, no, we just work nine to five, like we were like, we're all from France. We like value life. Would you, in, would, would that be okay for you? Would, like, would you? would you invest in that company? That's a tough question. Uh, you know, I think I, I try not to overgeneralize. So I try to remember like, well, hey, like it worked for LinkedIn. It, yeah, it worked for but, LinkedIn. But I do think that's, you know, probably more of an exception than the rule. And I think that the key thing we, you know, that I would want to see as an investor is that the company is doing what it needs to to succeed. And so for whatever reason, like a 40 hour week is enough, maybe because there's like no competition in the space or, you know, maybe there's, there's not that much engineering work and most of the work's like on the sales side. So the engineers don't have to, you know, pull in hundred hour weeks or 80 hour weeks. Like that sounds great. Um, I think for a lot of companies, you know, they're racing against the clock, they're racing against a lot of competitors, like they're, they're racing against a lot of things. And so then if you, you know, if you're committing to 40 hours a week, like there's a good chance that even if with a really good idea and a good team, you just might not get there in time. Okay. I'll buy it. So, all right, you're, you're, you're in LA, you're working for a cool startup. Life is great. What, what do you do next? Uh, well, I spent, so I spent four years at the company. Four years yeah. in, in LA. You said, you said a couple of years. Were uh, I spent two years in LA and then spent a couple of years, uh, working remotely. Okay. And, um, and 
so you know it was something I like it was a job I really enjoyed but I think towards the end I was you know kind of just starting to get ready to do something else because four years is I think pretty long time at a company for an engineer yeah and I actually really liked early stage startups so both factual and LinkedIn you know I was there kind of at the 15 to 50 person phase and at the time I started thinking well like I really like startups you know I've been at a couple early stage companies like maybe I should start my own um I had a couple ideas I was thinking about I uh I talked to some friends about maybe starting something together. And one of the things I felt like I was really missing though is that I didn't really know anything about the one to five, like one to 10 person stage where, you know, there's no one in the team, you're just starting out. It's kind of like you have a blank screen in front of you. What do you do? And so I wanted to learn more about that. And I wasn't really sure where to start. You know, I thought maybe I'd take a few months off, like read some books, read some blog posts, like try to meet founders who are friends of friends. And what happened was right after I left Factual, uh, one of my friends came up to me. She also worked at Factual with me. And she basically said, well, look, I'm going to leave in a few months as well, transitioning out. And me and a couple of people I know are actually going to start a seed fund. We're going to work with these like really early stage companies. And we're all from the business side. And we want somebody on the technical side to help look at companies together. And so my and my friend Eva, she invited me to join this you know fund that was forming at the time that you know eventually became Sousa Ventures. And my goal was, and I was pretty explicit with the team about this, was... I thought I'd do this for like six months or 12 months and meet a bunch of early stage founders and like learn a little bit about what that journey is like in the earliest days, what investors look for, uh, you know, kind of build out my network among investors a little bit, and then I go start something. And that was my plan for, you know, the first year or so. And, you know, a year turned into two and then turned into three. And now it's been about six. And what basically happened, you know, probably sometime in year two was I ended up realizing I really liked venture capital. And also a lot of the best founders I met, like I felt like they would actually be much stronger founders than I would be. So I wasn't sure like, you know, if I could kind of build the same kind of companies or the same magnitude of companies that we were looking for them to build. Um, and so given that, you know, I really liked the VC job and wasn't sure anymore if I wanted to be a founder, um, I, I ended up deciding to just stay in venture. And so, you know, now six years at this firm and it's a little bit like a startup where we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we market ourselves? Like what kind of products and services do we build? Um, but you know, I, I really like the side of the table. Well, yeah, I mean, you're working at a VC fund, but you also started a VC fund, so you get to have some type of startup experience there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the a lot of the leading seed funds have that dynamic where they almost you know they have products and services, right? Where they'll have you know they'll do like pitch deck reviews, or they'll try to introduce you to execs at companies that might want to buy your product. But it's not it's not like a one off consulting thing. Like they really try to productize it and make it a like almost like a menu of products and services they offer that are, you know, they try to standardize over time. And um, so I, I like that aspect of it that, you know, it is a little bit like building a startup. Uh, that's interesting. And I mean, it's interesting to, to, to hear you say, like, you don't think that you could compare to the great founders that you got. I mean, you seem like a really confident guy. You've accomplished a ton in your life. I, mean, I imagine you could accomplish whatever you put your mind to. But like yeah, I don't really hear like that uh, meeting with people. Usually, it inspires you. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't like say, oh, I can't. I can't. I can't be that person. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I realized two things. Like one was sort of a, a skill gap, and one was maybe like just not the right personality. So on the skill gap, you know, for a while I thought I'd be a CTO. Uh, you know, that seemed that seemed like a natural thing given I, I was an engineer by training. And what I realized over time is, you know, what a startup really needs is somebody that can, you know, take it take like take nothing and build, you know, a V.1 and then a V1. And that's not really my strength. Like my strength's more like if you give me a V1, I could build a better V2. 
Um, it's kind of what I did at Factual. It was what I did at LinkedIn. And that was kind of the, the area where I shine, which means like I'm not that useful in the early days. Um, and so, you know, I realized this and I was like, well, maybe, maybe instead of CTO, now that I am familiar with the pitching process and I know a bunch of investors, like maybe I should be a CEO. And the realization there was like, I'm, you know, I'm not super charismatic um, or, you know, probably not even moderately charismatic. Uh, I'm pretty introverted. I'm not like really a salesy person. And CEOs, like all they do is like they talk to people. They're, you know, trying to lead people, trying to inspire people. Um, they're trying to sell to like, you know, investors, employees, journalists, customers, you name it. And like, so that's, that's again, that's not really my personality, not something I'm great at. And so I think you know, it's like, well, if I'm not CTO and I'm not CEO, like what would I even do? And like, would it be that useful to a company in the early days? Um, and instead, you know, I, I really enjoy working with founders that are building things and trying to help them out because then I can, you know, help a little bit and maybe some areas where I know more things than they do or I have more experiences than they do. Uh, but they're, you know, they're, they're a lot better at the things that I can't do that well, like sales. Yeah, well, Leo, I mean, this is some pretty powerful insights that you got. You didn't even have to, like, fail to get them. Like, you just <laughs> <laughs> you were able to get them, like, while you're building something that, that's being successful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, it's, you know, it is inspiring to see what people can do. But I think also, like, sometimes if you see how far ahead they are, it makes you realize, like, you're in the wrong, you know, you're, you're aiming for the wrong target. And so I imagine, like, if you're, you know, like maybe if you're in high school and you're playing basketball, like if you're playing with like the local high school champ, maybe that's inspiring. But if you play with Jordan, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't play basketball anymore because yeah, like I'm be humbling, not anywhere yeah. near here. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I think I met enough sort of, you know, the Michael Jordans or future Michael Jordans of entrepreneurship that I realized like I wasn't one of them. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a cool spot to be in that, that you were able to afford yourself. That's great. Um, okay. So Tell us now about your fund. Like, what do you guys in, invest in? What excites you? Like, are you thematic investors? Like, how does it work? Yeah, we're pretty generalist. So there's there's three partners, including myself. And the thing we really look for is defensibility. So we like companies that, you know, have strong differentiation, strong competitive advantages, and they can basically sustain those competitive advantages over time. And the reason we think that's important is, you know, if you're a tiny startup and you have no revenue or like a million dollars in revenue, no one cares, like no one's trying to copy you, no one's trying to steal your business. But then as you grow and maybe someday you have, you know, millions of users or like, you know, tens or hundreds of millions in revenue, you're going to get other startups trying to copy you. You're going to get, you know, the Google or Facebook of your industry, like trying to take you out. And we just think it's really important to, you know, have some kind of defensibility that makes that really hard to do, which could be, you know, proprietary data, it could be IP, it could be network effects, you know, things like that. Um, so, so that's kind of the thing we look for, just strong defensibility and strong moats. And uh, that's a pretty general criteria. So we've ended up investing in a bunch of different categories. So the two best investments we have are we invested in Robinhood at Seed, uh, the stock trading app. Uh, we invested in Flexport at Seed, which is like a, a freight forwarding company that helps companies move goods around the world. Um, but we've invested in like a quantum computing company and cybersecurity and like agriculture, robotics, and you name it. And I think that's part of what makes the job fun is just being exposed to all these different ideas and like different companies. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a very cool part of the job. I'm curious, what's defensible about uh, free stock trading? Well, this one is kind of interesting because my opinion on this has definitely evolved over time. Uh I think what's defensible about it is they have a really good trusted brand and it's really hard to beat free and good. (laughs) So I think if they had done like a really nice stock trading app, but you have to pay for it, and then somebody could come out and say like, well, you know, we we did a nice stock trading app, but it's free. Uh, and similarly, like maybe if they'd done, you know, a free app, but it wasn't that good, somebody could come in and say like, well, our app is free and it's a lot better. And here it's like, I think you can kind of catch up to it somewhat, 
but it's really hard to beat it. And everyone talks about how, you know, when you're trying to beat an incumbent, you have to be 10x better. Well, like, how are you, how do you get to 10x better than free and like really friendly and really nice? And so I think that's their moat that like they have a good trusted brand. They have a bunch of users that love it. And there isn't really a clear place where somebody that wants to challenge them would go to actually, you know, beat them out in the market. Right. So you, it sounds like you invested after they had kind of established a brand. Because like I heard, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that Robinhood had like a really tough time raising money in the very beginning because people said, well, stock trading costs $10. Why don't you just charge $5? Like that would be, that would be great, right? You could build a nice business. And they said, well, that wouldn't be transformative. Yeah, we, we, we ended up investing pretty early. So it was, it was during the seed round where, um, you know, I think a lot of investors ended up passing. And, you know, for us, like this is kind of more in retrospect, but we were already seeing a little bit of evidence of this at the time. What we've ended up really liking uh, in founding teams is when they have experience in whatever problems they're solving or whatever domain they're attacking. And so, you know, like, for example, if you're selling power, like software to power plants, if you've never touched a power plant, don't know anyone that's worked at a power plant, like that's going to be really tough. Right. Uh, but if you come from that industry, like that's a real, you know, real short term advantage. And so with uh, Vlad and Baiju from Robinhood, they'd spent previously a few years building infrastructure for uh, high-frequency trading funds. And so they're really, you know, they're really familiar with sort of like the technical rails behind really fast, really inexpensive trade execution. So we felt like they really understood like the technical risks better than most people. Um, and they'd actually built, if I remember, like a, a little social network for finance that was a little bit similar to StockTwits, if you're familiar with it. Yeah, Howard Lindstrom. Um, yeah, so th I, and I think they had like tens of thousands of users on it. So it was like kind of clear they could also build well-designed products, and they, you know, they had some like users to seed uh, Robinhood. And so I think I think there are a lot of positives uh, in their favor when we invested. But it was it was pretty early. It was like before they launched, before they had a wait list. Um, it was it was the really early days. Oh wow. Um Sorry to go down that tangent. That's like the fintech uh, nerd in, inside of me. But I don't know if other people will find that interesting. But I do. So last question here. Advice. You're talking to someone who's early in their career, still in college, first job, whatever it is, trying to figure out their place in the world. It kind of sounds like you've just put your head down and worked hard and like uh, maximized for learning and attaching yourself to like people that you can learn a lot from. Is that is that like the main piece of it, the guiding piece of advice that that you would give a young person? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good one. Is to you know look for things that are. That have very little downside, right? So, like, you know, if you're if you're betting on some company to make you rich, then like, if it fails, maybe you kind of walk away feeling like you wasted your time. Um, but you know, if, if if there's a person there you really want to work with, or a specific project you're really interested in, yeah. then even if everything else fails, like you might you might feel like that was a rewarding experience, you know, regardless of the outcome. Um, but in, in terms of career advice, I, I guess I would say you know, I, I have three pieces of advice. So, so one is. I think early on, you don't have to over-optimize. So I think there is this desire to be like, what's like the perfect first job or the perfect next job? And I think when you're, when you're just out of college or high school and you're young and you're starting out your career, that's like the best time to actually explore different options. And it's one of those things where, you know, when you're 40 and you have kids and you have a house and a mortgage, it's much harder to be like, hey, I'm going to start from scratch in a new career or I'm going to take a chance on this, you know, startup that'll pay me, you know, two thirds of the salary that my company pays. Uh, but when you're like 22, uh, that is something you can do. Um, so I think I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, I think a second piece of advice is I really, you know, personally for me, I've really enjoyed opportunities where they feel pretty unique. Um, and also, you know, especially if there's like an easy way out of them. And so, for example, like, I think a lot of times people are tempted to go to like Google or Facebook if they're engineers. 
And one of the things about those companies is like, if they'll hire you today, like they'll hire you in three years, like they'd still have to work with you. And so I think, you know, deferring that to do something more unique uh, is a pretty easy choice for, in my mind, because like if you want to work at a startup or you want to start your own thing or you want to go to a nonprofit, like Google will still take you in three years if they take you today. Um, but if you go to Google today and maybe like your best friend was starting a company you were interested in, like maybe that chance never comes up again, right? Because how often does that happen? And so I, I really like looking, like trying to, you know, see if, if some opportunity seems really unique and special where I might not have it again and where like the other opportunities I'm looking at, uh, you know, might arise in the future or like will be easily available in the future. Um, and I, I think the last piece of advice uh, I would say is just be careful taking people's advice. Because what I've noticed is everyone's advice is just based on what's worked for them and what didn't work for them. And so, for example, for me, like, I optimized for working with good people and ended up at LinkedIn. LinkedIn was great. So like that's, you know, my advice is like optimize for things like that. Maybe if LinkedIn had been like clinkle and I had optimized for, you know, working with good people and then it, you know, the company like flamed out or it was a fraud or, you know, something bad happened. Maybe I'd have the opposite advice, which would be like, Hey, like, you know, really do your diligence on the company and doesn't matter who's working there. And so I think any advice you get will is really colored by the person's experiences. So I think it's usually more useful to hear about the person's experiences, like see what resonates with you, see what you learn from it, but don't just take advice blindly, like regardless of who the source is. Oh, I love it. Leo, oh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention. You have a blog, which, I mean, it's, it's, oh, I, don't, I don't know if you still post on it, but there's like an incredible wealth of information on there about startups and raising capital and startup best practices and life advice. And it's like an incredible blog, coding.vc, right? Uh, codingvc.com codingvc.com um, yeah i'm i'm a little behind on posting i keep meaning to but it, it's been you know it's probably been a few months since the last post but I, I keep meaning to get back to it all right well you're gonna have like a flow of traffic coming to right now because like it's, <laughs> well, I, I better post something out there's a lot of good content on there guys so well, thank you check it out okay leo thank you so much yeah thanks so much for having me i really enjoyed it me too thanks thanks for listening today let me know what you think leave us a review on itunes and tell your friends about this podcast thanks